And so thinking about interdisciplinary research takes you from the satellites and the computer models and uh, understanding the weather and the climate through to thinking about the impacts and how do we address them, how do we get people engaged, how do we understand where the challenges are, communicate to the local community, understand from them, not tell them. Because if you want to make change in a local community, you've got to talk to the people who are trusted. The Born Global Coffee Pod series is powered by Advance, the professional network for overseas Australians, fueling change at home and around the world. When Aussies step out of their comfort zone and drive ideas, talent and ambition internationally, I don't know about you, but I feel a sense of irrepressible optimism. Through the 2021 Advanced Series, I'm going to introduce you to the next household names, triggering the waves of change that are breaking upon our shores down under. What makes so many Aussies take their ingenuity, hope and grit to faraway places? How can we celebrate and support them more readily? And who are these global success stories when they're at home? At a time when leadership can feel in turmoil, let's lift ourselves and future generations up with stories of Aussies born global, with the courage to become the change the world needs. I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest. We're going to be talking with Professor Jenny Evans, who was the Advanced Awards Sustainability Category finalist. Now, she's a professor of meteorology and atmospheric science at Penn State University. She's also the director of the Institute for Computational and Data Sciences, employing faculty at the nexus of interdisciplinary research that relies on advanced computer and data science and serves as a hub for high-performance computing and big data research initiatives. What's fascinating for me about Jenny is that she's investigating the impact of climate change on tropical cyclones, and she's using machine learning and other methodologies for improving forecasts and for projecting how climate change will impact society and people. Absolutely fascinating stuff. Let's get into it. Welcome, Professor Jenny Evans. Well, Professor Jenny Evans, I could not be more thrilled to be having the opportunity to have a conversation with you. Thanks so much for your time. I'm interested to start this conversation. You're involved in such an interesting array of projects and uh, bodies of research. What for you, though, is top of mind at the moment? As we start 2021, what are you setting your, your sights towards, thinking about? Thanks, Holly. I'm based in the US. And while we live in a little village adjacent to a large university town and not in a city, COVID's still everywhere and what it's doing is going to govern how we run our own lives. How much has it disrupted your your work and life? Well, I have been working at home since mid-March last year. So my husband and I had a week's holiday in New York City in the second week of March. And then we got home and the university sent out an email saying on Friday saying, as of Monday, we're going to be online only. And so I'm not teaching, but he was teaching and he had to flip his entire classes online over the weekend. And so did everyone. And they did. And I was proud of what we did. So this is Penn State University. We went fully online, but classes were at the scheduled class times and professors were expected to be as available to their students as they would have been if they'd been in the classroom. And it went really well. I know of another major university that just the professors just started posting stuff online and and you know, it was nothing like it should have been. But so he was really busy doing that. And I had to send an email out to, I have about 40 staff in the Institute and say, all right, everyone stay home. We're going to figure out how to run the Institute online. Now, 
I run the Institute for Computational and Data Sciences, so you would expect that we could do that. <laughs> and it would, have been, <laughs> it would have been a bit embarrassing if we couldn't, but one of the things is that we run a high-performance computing system that over 4,000 people use. And something like that, it isn't just like turning on your laptop and away you go, right? It's a very complex system with a lot of... Uh, a lot of interacting parts that if something goes wrong, it could be a real issue. And so having to go remote and have very clear protocols for what they call break-fix, right? If you physically have to fix something, we had to have very clear protocols to keep people safe. So it, none of it was trivial, but uh, we did it. And I had them all still working remotely until at least May. The situation there remains problematic. You know, we're still nowhere near getting this thing beaten. And we keep having conversations around sort of the, the new normal, a phrase that I'm already coming uh, to tire of. But what do you, how do you think this will change, or if, if it will, academia in the medium to long term? I think it's going to change quite a bit. I mean, I've given a number of seminars via Zoom that I wouldn't have had the time to go travel and give the seminar. The downside is... On Zoom, everyone turns their camera off and you're speaking to this dead air. And, and so it's hard then because you can't gauge how people are uh, thinking and what their questions might be. So it's mixed. But I think it is going to allow us to have more interactions and maybe the way to do that will be to sort of identify interests, then get together mm. and then get back remote. I have... Um, I don't know where I got this from, but it's the three beer rule or the three coffees, right, whatever, that you can collaborate with someone after you've sort of shared some time and, and you know, three beers is kind of a symbol of that. And then when it's you're remote. Australian, the three beer rule, yeah, I like that. Yeah, well, and then when you're remote, you have a better sense of them as a person and it's easier to sort of connect and, and do the work more effectively and maybe enjoy it more too. So I think there's going to be a mix, but it will give us more freedom to collaborate and also more freedom to recruit. Mm, that's a good point. Absolutely. You can go far and wide, can't you? Yeah. I mean, we used to think, I, I even with our institute was concerned about employing people who weren't local because of the need to build the team. And I still, I think it's the same thing. I mean, I'd be happy now to have people who were mainly remote, but I would want them to come on site, you know, maybe a week or two every two or three months mm. just to have time, face time with people and that, to get to know them. I think maybe the three beer rule isn't enough if you've got to be developing a complex system that everyone has to be completely on target. So I would like more face time, but I think it still gives everybody a lot more flexibility in building careers. And, you know, with COVID, um, a lot of the guys have young families and they didn't know what would be happening with school and so on. So having the flexibility to work at home and to trade off with their partners, let them manage things like that in a way that was more effective. So a lot of moving parts, but I think it's going to give us more flexibility. I hope it doesn't isolate us more. I think that's just a concern on the other side of the positive. Yep, absolutely. 
Now, I want to delve into your research because I'm absolutely fascinated by what you do. Uh, now, I'm going to do my best job to succinctly summarise this and then you can correct me. Your work centres on the fundamentals of tropical cyclone evolution from sort of mm-hmm. birth of a tropical cyclone in the tropics or subtropics right through the life cycle of what can potentially be quite devastating storms. How mm-hmm. on earth do you end up deciding that that's going to be the thing that you focus on? Where does that, where does that get inspired by? Um, a couple of things that interacted when I was just finished my undergrad. So I did my undergrad at Monash in applied maths. And I, the one thing I knew, or two things I knew, I loved maths and I didn't want to be a maths teacher. <laughs> so I didn't know what to do with myself. And so during my undergrad, I found out that to do meteorology, to understand the weather was a lot of the kind of maths that I really loved. And so that made it obvious that I could turn my maths degree into something to do with the weather and climate. But I still didn't know what until I sat in on a class on tropical cyclones and I sort of went, that's it. And then kind of thinking back, you're probably too young to remember tropical cyclone Tracy, but that hit Darwin on Christmas Eve in 1974 and I remember as a little kid thinking, those kids, Santa's not going to get there. What's going to happen, you know? I love that thought pattern. And, you know, mum and dad sort of talked me down from that, that Santa was very clever. Um, (laughs) (laughs) But so that kind of gave me a focus on where to start. And so I started with track because Tropical Cyclone Tracy was doing this. So it's hit Darwin, not hit Darwin. Hit Darwin. I mean, the track as it approached Darwin the forecast could be yes or no, it was going to hit the city. And it turned out yes, but it turned at the last minute. So the trouble with the track is where I started on track. But since then, I do soup to nuts on tropical cyclones. So I'm interested in how they form, where they form, why they form. And I've had student, I had a student from Bermuda who was interested in the subtropical formation. So areas further away from the equator because that affected Bermuda a lot and so the Bermuda Weather Service sent him to learn about that and I currently have a a grad student she's from Puerto Rico and she cares a lot about the storms that would hit Puerto Rico and interestingly she's looking at how weather over equatorial Africa affects tropical storms in the Atlantic and so completely different right and then I had a a student a couple of decades ago now, and he was interested in how formation what forecast, how it was forecast. So what was our skill in forecasting tropical cyclone formation? And it turns out that then it was abysmal. Now it's better, but it's not good. And can I ask, for those of us who have not studied, you know, the, the formation of cyclones and their evolution, what's a fascinating stat fact you can share with us to to paint a little picture or to give us a little bit more color for this area of research i guess the most interesting thing in terms of why would it be is that there's roughly the same number of tropical cyclones around the globe every year they're not always in the same place but there's roughly the same number and so what that said to me and i've only done a little bit of work on this is that there's some energy transfer that they're doing some way they're moving heat and and, uh, momentum so how the winds blow effectively around the globe that helps sustain the climate so this is my 
hypothesis for that. And I think other people have done some nice work that puts some meat on those bones. But that to me is really interesting. So if we don't have a very busy year, then, you know, Fiji maybe is more likely to get it, for example. I wanted to ask you about a piece that I found that you wrote for Newsweek that was titled um, Where the Geeks Who Have Protected the Public for, From Weather Extremes for 100 Years, which yep. I loved as a title. It was a very, very provocative and interesting title. But can you tell us a little bit more about this tribe of geeks and what exactly what they've done to protect the globe? Yeah, so the American Meteorological Society, the AMS, um, turned 100 years old in 2019, and I was the president of the society that year. And so what I was doing there is talking about what we've done and how that's helped society. And I think in one word you can say, or one word, one phrase, um, meteorologists keep people safe. I mean, of course, we tell you whether or not to take your umbrella or your jumper or and in Melbourne you take them all right (laughs) this is true but you know you think about it um, even in the late 19th century Father Benito Vines was sent as a missionary to Cuba and he decided the biggest contribution he could make as a missionary was figuring out when a hurricane was coming because he needed to keep people safe And so the same, I mean, that's what we do. We forecast for shipping and for aircraft and for everything you can think of in your daily life. And more recently, also for the energy industry and so on, which, you know, sounds more like just helping companies make money, which it is. But also, if it's going to be a really hot day, you know, you're going to have to have a lot more air conditioning and so on. So the energy has to be there. And so in all of this, that's what we do and so we're the geeks who've kept people safe right and in millions of ways you know in the AMS we have people who are who are working with energy companies and we have people who are thinking about how to communicate a forecast so that people understand what they should be doing and we have the people who build the global climate models and the satellites and people who broadcast on the television radio or on the web um, the academics you know, I mean, I can't even think of them all. People in emergency management, um, actual forecasters in the weather service around the globe and in the World Meteorological Organization, which is uh, one of the branches of the UN. So, you know, all these geeks get together and, and uh, it's, it's a really amazing group of people. I mean, you know, they're not saints or anything, but it's a really amazing, yeah, interesting yeah. yeah, but it's an interesting, fun group of people too because they love what they do. One of the things you said in that article that I found interesting was that to ensure the greatest public good, it's imperative that forecasts and other environmental information be effectively communicated. Yes. How well do you think we do right now of communicating weather information? And is there a difference between, you mentioned kind of keeping people safe in acute weather conditions where I arguably think maybe we're better than general mm. weather information and discussion around climate change. But I'd be intrigued for a, a much more informed view. I think we have people, day-to-day people do pretty well just sort of trying to figure out what the weather's going to be like, and that's in a low-threat setting, right? In high-risk weather, often people don't react the way we think they would. And so thinking about how to communicate that better has been something that's been a challenge. And interestingly, so 
you know, meteorologists are scientists, so they communicate like scientists. And so they always put the, well, it could be this if, or it could be that if else, right? Well, that doesn't work when you want people to get out of the way of a hurricane, right? And, And so not being very formal about communication wasn't helping. But now when you look at the even the forecasts coming out of the National Hurricane Centre, they're much more specific about what the consequences could be. I think also we have a better understanding and can be more specific without crying wolf. Mm. And it's important. So, you know, having better knowledge is one thing. Not being afraid to speak in terms of the people who are your audience, I think, is another thing. And I think, you know, talking about why we're poor at climate change, when it wasn't as obvious and visible, then people just couldn't get a focus on it, right? Mm -hmm. You're worried about your kids got measles. That's a very real worry and it's very important. Climate change is important, but it can wait till next week or next month. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's the way, again, that's been that problem, isn't it? It hasn't had that level of urgency to it um, for some people that it has that the impending, you know, a hurricane's about to blow down my house has. Yeah. And so as a consequence, it hasn't had the same level of imperative to taking action. Yeah. I think too, when we started, there was so much, this is going to be so terrible and it's all going to be so devastating that maybe we disempowered people. Mm. That it's so terrible. Well, how am I going to do that? You know, how am I going to climb that mountain if it's just me doing my little bit? Do you think these lessons are being learnt or do you think there's still change that needs to be made to the way that we communicate about climate change to get a greater level of not just public awareness, I think the awareness is there, but a greater level of action? No, I think they are being learned and I'm, I'm heartened by what appears to be beginning in the US with the new administration. Um, they have some amazing people who they've engaged at the highest level and there are many, many people who I think, if given the chance, will engage. So one of the things that that they've been talking about and one of the, and I can't remember her name, uh, she's a former governor, she turned it around into economic benefit. So climate change, you know, it's all, well, the coal industry, they are going to lose their jobs. Well, if you look at the statistics, most of the people who could lose their jobs from the coal industry already have um, with automation. But she turned it around to talk about what are the opportunities, what are the new industries that are going to grow up, how can we create all these new jobs and improve the planet, you know, win-win for everyone. I think that there initially there was a lot of talk in terms of zero-sum game, and I don't think that's the way it works either. I mean, we can make new opportunities and we can create. We don't just have to say we have a hundred blocks in the in the box and we have a hundred no matter what. I mean, we're not stuck with that. So I think those things and, and coming to those realizations and thinking about it in terms of opportunity to create better is a, a change in the conversation that's really going to make things make things more possible. I like that. That's a really encouraging tone and a great insight, I think, in terms of probably a way that that narrative hasn't been playing out as much publicly, at least. I'm sure there have been certain proponents of it, but I don't think that's the dominant takeaway that most people would have when they engage in the climate change narrative. 
I wanted to touch on another piece of work that I found fascinating that you're involved with. Since 2014, my understanding is you've been uh, attempting to sonify storms or, in essence, to turn storms into music. Yep. My first question is, does storms sound like heavy metal? Like, what does the storm actually sound <laughs> I love like that. play it? Um, so that was work with my colleague, Mark Ballora, who's a professor of music technology. Unfortunately, that work ended last year when Mark died suddenly, um, oh, and I haven't, I haven't found a new collaborator yet. But... The good, the exciting thing, and the reason we collaborated was thinking. You know, Mark's philosophy was that we use our eyes all the time, but we've got five senses. And you know, as a baby, you're also using your ears. You learn language, and you get all of this extra information from sound. And then, as we get older, we don't seem to use it in as focused a way as we do with our eyes. And so, he wanted to translate translate all sorts of things into sounds he did he translated information about arctic squirrels and hurricanes and all kinds of things it was really fun and so what we did is we sat down and said what are the things that people want to know about a hurricane and uh, one is how fast does it blow and one is where is it right and then one i was interested in is what's its structure so the shape of it actually tells you something about whether it's going to persist get more dangerous or die off and so i'd created um a way of representing that as well and so we decided on what we wanted to look at and then he basically created um electronic instruments to map that but it's a mapping so it's not like creating a symphony that kind of talks about a hurricane it's so you know every time the value is seven or whatever seven would be the note played right so it maps one to one but it doesn't have to be linear but it, it's always the data are represented and that's why it's sonification rather than symphony or something it's fascinating it's really, it's really a wonderful thing. And I had so much fun with it. And one of the things we were trying to do, trying to get funding for, was to take this into a children's museum with the idea that if you have children who are daunted by science and you can turn it into a game with sound, you know, it's like nobody's an expert in that. So they can be not expert along with the rest of the world. Like their teachers won't be, their parents won't be. So maybe that would be a kind of way of breaking down people, you know, an apprehension about science and, and opening them up to thinking about it as more fun. I love Because I think it's fun. Making it more accessible. That's brilliant. And yeah. it makes me think about too, I know something you're very passionate about is interdisciplinary partnerships and just that notion of combining mm. music and science, you know, and exactly. bringing those two together, uh, I think is such an interesting and novel approach. But why has that been such a through line of your career? Why are you passionate about the inter interdisciplinary piece? Because I'm interested, again, in how weather and climate affect people. And I can do the maths and I can do that. But if I work with people who are interested in communicating it, whether it's in music or I work with people who are doing engineering and want to understand how we can build new systems or whatever new cities that will improve, you know, whatever the evolving climate's going to be, improve people's lives, then that's another one. And talking with people, one of the things as I was thinking about 
what was important in terms of the American Meteorological Society, the people who were part of that organisation when they asked me to be, uh, well, when they asked me to run for uh, president, was what will our community look like in the 21st century? And as I said, you know, we keep people safe. But more than that now, I think with climate change, it's highlighted and with, you know, other weather systems, it's about social justice too, that when we think about climate change, you know, I'm sure it's been pointed out a lot, the folks who get to decide what happens aren't the folks who live with the consequences. Absolutely. You know, so thinking about New Orleans, they've got sinking land because the river deltas no longer get no longer having silt flood down and build the land up so the land is sinking and the sea level is rising and from our understanding they're going to be their risk to tropical cyclones is not going to decrease and may well increase so there's a convergence of of challenges there for that community and after Hurricane Katrina, they started thinking about what can we do to protect ourselves and, and, you know, to build a future. Well, with everything you think about, there are positives and negatives. So they could build a seawall. Well, if you build the seawall, that changes how the water flows along the coast and that could just damage another part of the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, you can plant mangroves or something else. Well, that's great, but that's going to be 20 years and what do you do in the meantime? And you can decide you can only protect a certain amount of coast and then people who live on the barrier islands watch their homes disappear. You know, they have to move off the island, which, you know, is where their family were based and so on. So they are all having to deal with that now and the people who decided to build the factories and drive the cars and and whatever we did aren't those people or mainly aren't those people. Completely. And so thinking about interdisciplinary research takes you from the satellites and the computer models and uh, understanding the weather and the climate through to thinking about the impacts and how do we address them, how do we get people engaged, how do we understand where the challenges are communicate to the local community, understand from them, not tell them. Because if you want to make change in a local community, you've got to talk to the people who are trusted. You know, coming in and saying thou shalt really doesn't work too well. Mm -mm. And so interdisciplinary research lets you create teams to do some or all or, or whatever to build that up. And, you know, that's really exciting. And interdisciplinary is also, I mean, we have some, I have some faculty colleagues who are astrophysicists. So they work on astrophysics in conjunction with um, statisticians and computer modelers and large-scale data analysts, artificial intelligence and machine learning and all of these things to understand, to find other Earth-like planets, to understand the evolution of the galaxies. And that's interdisciplinary too. It doesn't have a social science component, but it brings together people who otherwise wouldn't do work together. And, you know, they have to learn to communicate across their different sciences. You know, you have to know how to communicate even just to know the questions to ask. And you have to be willing to not know the answer. Mm, Absolutely. I I love that. That's such a powerful 
powerful justification for interdisciplinary work. And I just think that piece around the science, but ultimately a way that empowers and impacts in a positive sense people and that notion yeah. of the justice element that comes with it, I just think is it's not an angle I'd thought about before. And I think that's quite a fascinating take on why this work matters so much and why that collaboration between so many parties so it feels like a empowered, not imposed decision is, is such yeah. a powerful one. Yeah. I wanted to ask you one final question before we wrap up our conversation, and that is launched on such an incredible array of topics. Big believer in trying to turn ideas into action. And so I'd mm-hmm. love to leave our listeners with a nugget from you. If you could encourage them to go and do anything after listening to what we've talked about today, what would you encourage them to go and do to either be a better leader or to become more impactful in the work that they're doing? What, what advice would you have or call to action? I always tell my students, if you don't tell people about your science, then it's much less valuable, right? We're used to just publishing, and that means that our colleagues learn. But talk about what you're doing. Talk about your research, because then people understand. And also, we have um, funding from government agencies and so on, so the taxpayers should know what we're doing. Mm. So to communicate effectively, I think I finally learned two things. One is think of yourself as the important person in the room and the other is act like the host. And I don't mean tall poppy, I don't mean be arrogant, but what I mean and what I didn't learn really until I was president of an international society was that you have to expect to be asked, I mean, so Australian, right? I never expected when I started that I would have to make a speech when I was there, even as the AMS president. So I wasn't prepared and, and I'm representing the society. I'm not, you know, so I had to learn that. So assume you're important, meaning just be ready to talk about what you think you're in the room because of. And then the act like a host is if you go in there feeling like, should I be here, then you're not going to come across well. But if you come in there and you try and make other people feel comfortable, then you'll feel comfortable. And so it makes it easier to put off a positive vibe and to really kind of get your message across effectively. I love that. Act like you belong to begin with and then act like the host. Um, Jenny, it's been such a pleasure to get to talk to you today. Congratulations on all that you've achieved in this wonderful career that you've had so far. I can't wait to follow what's next. I'm very intrigued to chart the progress of your continued work. And I just want to thank you so much for the honesty and openness with which you've shared with us today. Thanks, Holly. I I enjoyed it. (laughs) Thanks so much. You made it easy. (laughs) Thanks for listening. I hope you're feeling fired up to be the change that you want to see in the world. I'd love to hear about the impact you're having. So hit me up on social and let me know what you're working on. And if you've enjoyed the conversation, why not keep it alive and share it with someone in your world? I'm Holly Ransom. Let's grab a coffee again soon.